Uh, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, uh, and we're going to be going from verses 18 through to 39. Uh, it's quite a long passage, but uh, probably one of my favourite parts of the Bible. Uh, the whole of Romans 8, I think, sits at one of the pinnacles, I reckon, of uh, the whole of God's Word for us. And uh, I'm going to read that for you, and you'll see it's on the screen. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, have them open as well. Follow along with us, that'll be great. And then Les will come up and speak to us. Uh, Paul is writing to the Roman church. Uh, he's gone through Romans chapter 1 to 7, and he's told us uh, our situation before God is hopeless. And then in Romans 8, he says, But... There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful passage that speaks about where we stand with him now. And uh, in Romans 8 verses 18 onwards, he gives us a great encouragement about what it's like in life now and how we stand now. Uh, It says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hey everybody. Um, if I haven't met you, and there's some, it's great to see some new faces since the last time I was here. My name's Les. Um, David and Karen are my parents. And uh, me and my wife, Tara, left here about four and a half years ago out to Armidale and to teach scripture classes all the time. Uh, I haven't done a lot of preaching since then, so um, I'm a bit under practice. So I'll pray that uh, God at least uses what I say today. Uh, I did want to give a talk about uh, suffering and about uh, the problem that it is, the intellectual problem, the, the, the pain that we feel uh, through it, just because I think it's really relevant. It's something that's always relevant. Uh, it never goes away. Um, and it's worth thinking through and spending some time with. I can't answer it fully uh, today, but let's just pray that God will um, guide us, guide our thinking, and help us to um, yeah understand uh, more who he is and what he's done. So let's pray. Loving Father, we give you great thanks for all that you give us, all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ, and just how much that shows us about you and who you are. Father, we just look to you for your leading and guiding now. Lord, as we consider your word, as I try to explain it, Lord, we're dependent on you, on your spirit revealing things into our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that I'd be sensitive in how I speak. And Lord, just guide what I say. And I pray that we might all come out of uh, this time trusting you more and loving you more for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, keep your Bible open. There is a bit of an outline uh, there. But the question, why God, why? Why is this happening to me? I'm not sure when you last asked that question personally. You might never have asked it yet, although it's unlikely. And it might be a long time since you've asked it. You could be asking that question right now. Why God? Why does this happen? We can think of the question like this. God, you're powerful, aren't you? Then why didn't you in your power do something to stop that thing that just happened? We might think about this globally. We might think about something like, uh, the, the German wings plane disaster. Why did that happen, God? Why Vanuatu? Why Nepal? Why do these things happen? We might ask this in our own lives. Cancer? Really? God, cancer? Why cancer? Why do those people treat me that way? How could I get ripped off like that? In my SRE classes, I ask the students to mind map the ugly bits in life. Kind of a nicer way of talking about it, but it takes no time to fill up a board for 12 and 13 year olds to even realise how much is wrong with our world. A picture of how much pain and suffering and evil goes on day in and day out. In our culture, in our society, where we're at as a country, I think it's just something that we tend to ignore. We do our best to ignore it. Consider why people are so committed to uh, getting wealthy, 
to traveling the world to trying to keep themselves happy? Or why so many people turn to drugs and alcohol? So I think it's because we're busy trying to distract ourselves from the realities of life. And you might have been there at some point in your life. We try to avoid the pain that comes in life. We're committed as a society and hoping in our science and our technology to eventually come up with answers to these kind of problems. Why does God allow the world to be this way? It's a question that we'll need to answer at certain times to actually defend our Christian faith. People will challenge us on this point and we'll need to be able to have an answer to it. Um, Sometimes it's a question that we will need to answer personally to overcome the doubt and the fear that we ourselves are experiencing in our own Christian lives. And it's a question that's likely going to be painfully asked of us when the circumstances we face come our way, when suffering knocks it out all. And it's a worthwhile question because contrary to how critics of Christianity may predict, it actually leads us deeper into our relationships with God. See, the the more seriously we take this question and the more that we look to the Bible for its answer, the more that we come back to our loving God, a God who's a loving saviour, who truly does think, work things out for our good, as the verse that we've just read promises. Now, at the outset of what I want to say this morning, I want to tell you that if you're suffering right now in some kind of significant way, I hope that what I say brings some comfort. But I also need to say that don't expect just working it out logically in your head, knowing the answer, is necessarily going to take the pain away. So if you are going through some kind of grief or illness or whatever, we need to seek out the help that's there. We need to draw on each other for that help. And we need to keep trusting God, keep sinking into him for that comfort. And likewise, if you immediately think of someone else, someone else that needs the answer to this question... We need to slow down at that point too. We can't just work out the answer and go and give it to them and think that that's going to fix their problems. Even when we can put all the pieces together in our minds, it doesn't necessarily mean that we suffer any less. See, often when those around us suffer, they don't need well-thought-out theological answers. They need our shoulder to cry on. That's why there's verses in the Bible like Romans 12, 15 that tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, but then to mourn with those who mourn. That's why in 1 John it says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in them? Dear children, John says, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. So this is the thing. If it's you or if it's someone else, faith in God and love for each other are the most important thing. We need to remember that. But having said that, what I want to do this morning is try to explain it the way that the Bible explains it. There's not a chapter in the back 
that answers this question directly. It only comes, we can only understand why God allows suffering when we understand the Bible as a whole and what it actually is. And knowing this stuff does bring comfort. But even more than comfort, it actually brings confidence. We'll look at our Bible passage in a while, but I want to state that there is a sense of mystery over why exactly God allows suffering. Many people have suggested good reasons for it, and I'll try to do that in a minute. But it must be said that it always is going to come back to our trusting in God, trusting that God is wiser than us, that his wisdom is good wisdom and it's perfect, and that God actually does know what he's doing. And so that's true of a lot of things, but definitely true of this. Only when we come to understand, as we learn and see all of God's character as it's revealed throughout the whole Bible, that's the place where we get a sense of, of his answer to this. And really it's when we specifically focus on the person of Jesus. We see the compassion that he had for people and the way that he himself wasn't immune to the suffering of this world but suffered great injustice and ultimately suffered that crucifixion that we know was for us. So I want to consider three things uh, in talking about this. First of all, I actually want to look at the objections that there are to God on the basis of the problem of suffering, whether he exists or what kind of a God he might be. Uh, But second of all, I want us to see that um, God might just have reasons for allowing suffering that are actually for our good. And thirdly, that above all, we're the people that have hope in Jesus. At the very first, the very first day of this school term um, back in Armidale, I had a pupil-free day, but I actually ended up at a funeral for a year 11 boy from our school. And this year 11 boy I'd met in year 7 and I taught him scripture all the way through. And He'd, it was his funeral. He'd, he'd suffered from brain cancer the whole time that I'd known him and I think a couple of years before he got to high school. Now, fortunately, he was from a Christian home and it was a pretty, uh, it, uh, this sounds odd, but a pretty warm and encouraging funeral. Well, it shouldn't sound odd to us because that's what we'd expect for people that hope in Christ. But uh, the thing the thing about that funeral was is that the hope uh, was the hope in Jesus was the real, real thing that was celebrated on that day, and this boy, the last time I'd seen him was in our ISCF group, our lunchtime group at school, and he was he was there. He was, you know, he didn't know that he was about to die, about a month after that, but his hope was so real and so firmly in Jesus that he wasn't worried about that at all. I think that's the kind of confidence that we can have. So that's where we're going to finish today. But first of all, the problem of pain and suffering, it isn't an easy idea to resolve. This is not an easy thing to understand. It's not an easy thing to talk about. For some people, the mere existence of pain and suffering is evident all the evidence that they need to just do away with God. Earlier this year, I don't know whether you saw this, it was on the 31st of January, um, British TV personality... An outspoken atheist, Stephen Fry, was asked in a television interview how he would react 
if, in fact, at the end of his life, he found out that God really existed. That was how the question was phrased. And this is exactly what he said. He said, how dare you, as if he's addressing God, how dare you create a world in which there's such misery that's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a, a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Now, apart from this giving an insight into what fuels his atheism, uh, for Fry and for many in the world, just the mere fact of suffering is a deal-breaker when it comes to any belief in God. You might have met people like that. Indeed, you might have once been a person like that, and even today you might still be someone like that, and for whatever reason you found yourself here this morning. We're going to think through that. For others, it's not quite that extreme, but just the fact of suffering leaves people who would be believers concluding that God is either himself evil or too weak to do anything. And we can kind of understand the logic there. You see, the Bible does present a God who is all-powerful, and that's what Christian Christian theology claims, that God is omnipotent, that he has, there's nothing that he can't do that's logically possible. Um, From creation throughout the history of Israel and to the resurrection of Jesus, God is shown that way. That's what our Bibles will tell us. He is the all-powerful one. And at the same time, the Bible does present a God who is full of love and mercy and kindness and compassion. And yet, given these attributes... All these things that we know about God, our ongoing experience as humans is generally some form of pain or suffering or injustice. So this is how the argument gets put together. That God, if willing to prevent evil, is not able, must in fact not be omnipotent, must not be all-powerful. This is the argument that people put up, that God, if he is willing to prevent evil but he's not able, then he mustn't be powerful. Or that God, if he is able to prevent evil but not willing, must himself be malevolent, that he himself must be evil. Now, this can be a pretty convincing argument. And if you're in a conversation with someone, it can be pretty hard to work through this or to help someone else understand. When you're in the middle of something painful, it can be difficult to understand this. It's understandably difficult to resolve kind of these complicated ideas, especially when our human experience confirms how painful and how real suffering is. But there's a problem with the logic. There's a problem with that line of thinking. See, what it misses is what the Bible actually tells us in, in everything that it tells us about who God is. It misses what it tells us about suffering. It misses what, it tells, what Jesus' life tells us about suffering. It misses the point about what the Bible itself actually is. See, the, God's Word, the Bible, is the true revelation of God to us. It's the thing that truly lets us know who God is. It's how God has revealed himself to us. 
and it's without error. So if we think that there's some kind of contradiction going on, or if we're accused of having some kind of contradiction, we're actually missing the point of what it is. See, because the Bible, like I've said, it does present to us a God who is all-powerful and who is full of love and mercy and compassion. And if you look at it long enough, you'll also see that it confirms that the human experience includes suffering. Read enough of the Psalms. You'll hear the cries of pain. Read the book of Lamentations as the, uh, as the people are led off into exile, God's people. There's lots of books that have been written about this, uh, but one that's the simplest to read and understand is called If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain by John Dixon. Um, and John Dixon makes the argument that from the Christian perspective, we can actually rework this logic and we'll not just rework it to suit our own ends, but the way that the Bible actually presents it is like this. That first of all, suffering is the human experience. But second of all, God has shown himself to be all-powerful and God is all-loving. And so we must logically conclude when we accept the Bible as God's word that God has loving reasons for allowing suffering to happen. And not only does he have loving reasons, but the actual reasons that he can, he is, and he will achieve in our world and in our lives. See, what John Dixon explains, and I'd recommend reading this book if what I've said today sparks your kind of interest in this. What John Dixon explains is that God's world is at the mercy and the free will of the humans that he made. We go back to the beginning of the world, the beginning of the Bible, and read about the beginning of the world. Genesis 2 clearly shows that God made humans with choice. And choice is what allows them to be more than robotic beings set up to live out God's will. And so then what happens in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity, well, it is actually linked to the root cause of suffering. It's the choice, it's the consequence of the choice that's made. Because the choice was to reject God, our creator, the result for all humans is suffering. I mentioned before that I get those students in my class to spell out all the, um, the things that they can think of as the ugly bits in life, all the things that they see as wrong with the world. And then I get them to do the next step, which is to actually look through each of those things and try to determine who causes each of those things to happen. And there's a strong case in every single thing that they put up that's actually at the hands of another person or group of people. So this is the thing. It all comes back to us. John Dixon describes what happened there is it's like we've become a law unto ourselves. Now there's some tension here as at one hand God wants a free world But see, he can't guarantee it's a world that's free from pain. And so John Dixon says it like this. See, God is not portrayed in the Bible as playing doll's house. He's not playing doll's house with the world. We are real independent beings designed for a relationship with the Creator. But because of this, we are capable also of defiance. 
And so it's our defiance, it's our sin that's the root cause of suffering. But then the tension is that our ability to be defiant is actually an expression of our dignity as human beings. It's complicated like this. It's a big thing to work our heads around. And so what this means is that God's designing us the way that he has means permitting our defiance. It allows for us to choose the opposite of him. And that will result or may result in our experiencing pain, but potentially will also allow for our experiencing all of the things that are the opposite of pain. It's the only true way to experience relationship with God. If it were not this way, we could not really know and experience love or community or the myriad of other experiences Accept it as what it really is to be human, as being central to being human. And so I didn't, I didn't write, uh, I didn't come up with this line. I can't remember where I heard it, but this is the best way to understand it. What God's done is the best possible way to achieve the best possible world. Now, if you want to understand this more, I'd recommend reading John Dixon's book. Do you have any copies of it, Paul? He'll get you one. And if not, if you want something a bit headier. Um, there's a, or, or if you can put up with the language, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain and I found that really helpful when I read that as well. I actually had to write an essay on this when I did some theological study, so I'm not comparing myself to those two, but in a really condensed way I could even give you that if you wanted to think through those things a little bit more. But let's move on. If we're to conclude that we have a God with good reasons, we actually need to start to understand what those reasons are. So let's look at our Bible passage. In verse 18 of the passage that we read today, we hear of this future glory for the children of God, those who have been promised to be forgiven, those who have been declared justified in Jesus. Well, our future as God's children is glory. You see, God's future for the world is one completely without suffering, no pain. That's the real and sure promise of God through the gospel. Verse 20 and 21 describe the way in which our world, God's creation, is in fact in bondage to decay, but it's actually waiting to be liberated from this. The problems that we experience in this world come directly back to our defiance as God is our creator. Yet we need to make a distinction here. What we've defied is God's moral will, what he's told us how, how we should live. That is what God says should happen, how people should live, how he designed people to live. And yet at the same time as God having this moral will, how he wants people to live. He also has a permissive will. That is what he will allow to happen in his world. God allows sin to occur and consequently allows suffering to take place. But he doesn't just stand idly by and wait until it gets out of hand. He does something about it. Let's look back at verse 20 and 21. For the creation, it says, was subjected to frustration... Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it for a purpose. 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, it is not a hopeless situation. Now, And God's not immune to it either. We read enough from our Bible, right back from the account of Noah, where God grieves over the earth, right through to the weeping we see in the life of Jesus. We see that God's emotional response to the, to the pain in his creation is that he genuinely grieves with us. And we also see that he suffers that pain. At the cross, he suffers in our place. And in Hebrews, it will tell us that God gets what our lives are like. Okay, We have a high priest, it says, who has suffered the way that we will. See, what Paul teaches here is that the gospel isn't some solution to some kind of unforeseen problem. Our God's sovereign. And it's all in his plan. The gospel is, in fact, what achieves for us the world that we will inherit. It'll actually be different to the life in the garden. You don't get a picture of a garden at the end of the Bible. You get a picture of a city. What's a city by comparison to a a garden? It's developed. It's developed into something. I've caught myself thinking before, how good would it have been to be in the garden with God at the beginning? And yeah, it would have been great. But I know in the same situation, I would have made the same mistake. But think about this, and this is where we need to set our hope. What will it be like in the new creation? What it will be like is totally unlike what it was then. I'm hesitant to use the word better, although it will be better what God achieves in the future. But it's more than just better. It's actually that it's more real. See, in the garden, we were made in the image of God. That's an incredible thing, and we still bear that image. But what's happened in the course of history since the creation is Jesus has died on the cross and been raised to life in resurrection power. And so what it says in verse 29 of what we've read today is that we're going to be conformed into the image of his son. And his son, Jesus, is revealed to us in this resurrection power. So we need to keep the whole Bible in mind as we understand the gospel. Genesis 3 describes the first instance of sin. And as the narrative of Genesis kind of develops, quickly death is included, murder Death and murder, these things kind of become the norm. They become what goes on in, in the human race. Yet right back in the interaction, in the middle of the interaction between God and his people and, and the serpent in Genesis 3 is this overwhelming display of God's grace. God's gracious towards them. See, God deliberately has delayed taking the life of his people to start to demonstrate his goodness. And not only that, but back in Genesis 3, his promise to the serpent is that he will be crushed. That that representative of evil and rebellion against God is going to be gotten rid of. And right from the very beginning, it's revealed that God will always fix up this world. He'll always recreate his creation. And of course, we understand that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. 
It's his sacrifice on the cross. It's the love of God in action and it's what we needed to take our sin away. So how do we live now? Well, just like a rock thrown into the middle of still water, the fall of people, the the, the first sin, keeps on sending ripple effects throughout our world. And I'm not sure whether it's getting worse. I don't know that I want to say that. But as I get older, I'm far more aware of it. This rejection of God just permeates all of life. Our world is full of pain. And it will continue to be this way until God brings it all to a close. But God, since the fall and still now, is merciful, mercifully and kindly bringing people through faith to know Jesus and to have the real hope that comes with Jesus. And that's more what Paul is talking about in this section. So let's, let's have a look at three things that this says about when we have faith in Jesus. So the first thing is we have hope for the future. Just have a look back with me at verses 22 on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning like in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So the hope we have is that we'll be adopted into God's family. We're going to be made God's children. And this is something that we don't fully have yet. So we need to be careful not to over or under-realise this. And Christians always make the mistake of going one way too far or the other. See, if we would over-realise the future that we have, then we would expect all the blessings of heaven now. And some in the church occasionally make that mistake but then we can go too far the other way we can under realize this and live like people who don't have any hope at all the real hope that we have is that there's a resurrection awaiting us resurrection to glory and this all comes back to the holy spirit the spirit of god is with each of us who have faith this is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we just look back at the start of chapter 8, or in the first section where it says in verse 11, it tells us about the Spirit. It says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. That's the hope that we have. And this is the spirit that we have living in us now that our faith is in Jesus. As we go on living with the hope of God's future um, plans for us and his creation, see, we won't be immune to the ongoing suffering and decay in this world. But what Paul teaches us is that God's Holy Spirit is already with us. And he's kind of put the deposit down for what will be true in the future for us. So let's jump back at verse 26. In the same way, this Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit 
because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So God's promise is that the Holy Spirit will guide us even through the hardest times to continue to trust the will of God. So the second thing is God's Holy Spirit. And the third thing we need to remember from this is that we have a God who is for us. He's on our side. Graciously, these verses tell us God is 100% for us. I'd want to read all of verse 31 to 39 again, but I won't because it'll make it go for longer. But read through back through that when you get home and think, dwell on those words, meditate on those words. In these words, Paul reminds us that God loves his children. God has justified us. Jesus has died for us and he also sits there interceding for us as God's children. Who can separate us from the love of Christ, it says. See, God's love is simply so deep and powerful and amazing that it gives us real comfort and real, real hope. It's the only thing that can. And whether we're suffering or experiencing pain of some sort, and we need to realise that, or whether we're doubting our faith, we need to realise that this is the one only true thing in the whole world, in all of the universe, that can bring any hope to the situation that our world's in. That's how unique and how amazing our gospel is. It's the only thing that can overcome a world of evil. It's the only thing that will give us any genuine comfort to endure through a world where evil causes the pain that it does. And then there's the promise of verse 28, and this is probably a good place to finish. The promise that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's a promise to hold on to. This is the message that we have for the world. This is not an aside to the gospel. This is at the heart of what the gospel is. God's great love for the world to overcome the problem of evil in the world. We can talk to people about the real hope that we have and about the comfort that we find in it. And we can invite people into a relationship with Jesus. That's the privilege that God's given to us. But also understanding this means we need to constantly repent of our own sin for the suffering that we actually cause to other people. So we can't just let ourselves understand this in our minds only. We need to realise it in the way that we live with other people. And this can really be for, um, pushed further the more that we understand about our world, the more that we understand what goes on, the more opportunities that we actually have to be the people among our world that say sorry, that try to repair relationships, that try to actually fix things up. This is why I personally think it's important as a Christian to understand how things like my lifestyle like affects things like the environment or people's lives in the developing world. Even repenting of just my poor decisions and being willing to change them. And finally, what this does is comes back to knowing the nature and character of God really well. 
to have this hope, to hold on to this hope, we need to prayerfully be people that study God's word. There's no shortcuts. We need to let God speak into our lives. It needs to be like food and water to us, like the air that we breathe, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, I mentioned that I wrote this as an essay a few years ago and it was really challenging to me to get then and it continues to challenge me the more that I think about it. And it's the kind of thing that is affected by our emotions and our circumstances. So I'm going to pray for us now, but in praying I just want to read uh, the last section of this and then we'll continue in prayer. But I'd encourage you as you think through different things and circumstances and stuff with life that you'd actually... You know, pray with each other. Pray with each other through the week or at the end of the service or um, talk to someone about stuff that's going on. Pray that we would, among all this and and at, at the heart of all this, know the hope that God's promised. So let's pray. Lord, you've promised this to us, that in all things we are more than conquerors through you who've loved us. Lord, let us be convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present or the future or any powers, height or depth or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting. Lord, we pray for those right in the middle of the pain and suffering that's to be experienced in this world. Lord, we pray that they might know your comfort. Lord, if they're Christian, that they might know the sure hope that comes from Jesus. And Lord, if they're not, that they might be uh, coming to know you, Lord, through their experiences. Lord, speak to them through what's going on. Lord, we pray for those who are in the position of needing to comfort someone who's hurting. Lord, we pray that we might resolve this in our hearts, constantly trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us. Lord, give us the strength when we need to uh, need to comfort someone and give us the boldness to speak words of truth that come from you. Lord, we pray for places like Venezuela and Nepal and places that are overcoming those kind of tragedies and we pray that they might uh, know the hope of Jesus, Lord, for a, a creation that's going to be liberated from, from the decay that we see. Lord, we pray for the Christians that are there, Lord, that they might continue to speak hope into the place. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, we look forward to your glory being revealed in our lives. Lord, we look forward to what will happen. And we just pray that that you would bring that on. And Lord, that as you do, Lord, that you'd lead us and guide us to share that hope that we have with many other people. And Lord, we just pray to you, trusting that what you've promised to us is true. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.